so they would say, is it moral for a person who is a traitor, who knows that in a day or two or three, there's going to arrive the kinds of products that he's selling. But when he's selling these products, they're relatively scarce. Is it legitimate for him to raise the price on the, those products, knowing that a, a, an abundance of supply is about to come in? Welcome to the Acton Vault podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Libraries are filled with books on the parables of Christ, and rightly so. In the words of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, while civilizations have come and gone, these stories continue to teach us anew with their freshness and their humanity. Two millennia later, the New Testament parables remain ubiquitous, and yet few have stopped to glean wisdom from one of Christ's most prevalent analogies, the use of money. In this Acton Lecture Series talk from October 2022, Reverend Robert A. Sirico discusses his new book, The Economics of the Parables. In it, he pulls back the veil of modernity to reveal the timeless economic wisdom of the parables. 13 central stories, including The Laborers in the Vineyard, The Rich Fool, The Five Talents, and The Faithful Steward, serve as his guide, revealing practical lessons in caring for the poor, stewarding wealth, distributing inheritances, navigating income disparities, and resolving family tensions. Father Sirico is the president emeritus and co-founder of the Acton Institute and pastor emeritus of Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Grand Rapids, Michigan. His writings on religious, political, economic, and social matters have been published in a variety of journals, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, the London Financial Times, the Washington Times, Detroit News, and National Review. He is the author of numerous other books, including Defending the Free Market, The Moral Case for a Free Economy, and A Moral Basis for Liberty. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Acton Institute. We're delighted that you could join us for today's Acton Lecture Series on this beautiful fall day. Today's format will be a lecture of approximately 30 minutes, followed by 30 minutes of questions and answers. We are recording this event, so those who want to ask a question uh, should raise their hand and wait for the microphone to be given to you before asking your question. As you know, the Acton Institute has been unflagging in its efforts to promote a free and virtuous society. And at the forefront of those efforts is Acton's co-founder and president emeritus, Father Robert Sirico. In addition to over 30 years of leadership at Acton, Father Sirico serves as a priest in the Diocese of Grand Rapids, where he recently retired as pastor of Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish and its ever-thriving Sacred Heart Academy Classical School. His writings on political, religious, economic, and social matters are published in a variety of journals, including the New York Times, 
The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, The London Financial Times, and National Review. He has provided commentary for numerous television and radio programs, such as Fox Business, CNN, the BBC, and NPR. He has authored numerous books and manuscripts, including Economics of the Parables, which was just published in May. So please join me in welcoming Father Robert Sirico. How very kind of you to invite me. <laughs> I'm really delighted to be here with you to, to discuss this new book. Uh, I've been doing interviews. You know, when you do a book, you, you spend months afterwards, uh, nowadays less than in the past, uh, on the phone or now with Zoom. It used to be you'd get on a plane and, and do this. So it's uh, a little easier to sit down in your office, at home, and all they see is this. So I just put the collar on and I put the jacket on and I've got my slippers on and occasionally the dogs will be barking in the background. That's the worst that, that happens. But, uh, and among the um, most frequent questions, at least the initial question that I'll get asked is, why did you write this book? Uh, when I was uh, being interviewed by Governor Huckabee, um, I was, uh, uh, he said, do you know, uh, I, I don't know if you know, he's an Assemblies of God minister. Uh, he said, I could have written this book. I said, you know, I had the same reaction when I first went in an Uber. I said, I could have invented this company. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, Governor, neither you nor I did invent the book uh, or invent the company or write the book. I wrote the book. And the reason I wrote the book is because I hadn't seen a book written on this. Now, of course, it comes out of 30-something uh, uh, years of preaching. And of course, the parables come up as a regular part. Uh, we'll have some parishioners from Sacred Heart who have heard me preach. And you may have heard me preach uh, on the parables as well. Uh, the one thing I rarely do, though, is try to make economic points in my homilies because I have a lot of other material uh, to work with. I don't have to do that in, in my homilies. But nonetheless, as I'm reading the homilies, as I'm preparing to preach on it, what occurs to me is how obvious it is in many of the homily, in many of the parables, not all of them, but in many of the parables, uh, that you see an economic dimension that emerges. I mean, immediately think of the parable of the talents. And this is all about economics. Did you know, by the way, the word talent, which we use now very commonly in English uh, idiom, uh, comes from the parables. It was an economic unit. A, a talent was an economic unit. And it's extracted from the scriptures, now applied in non-biblical, non-moral reference points. You find a lot of those things, by the way, in the scriptures. That's why I think uh, I insist that even if not for a religious um, motivation, it is important for people to be familiar with the scriptures for a literary reason. You cannot read Shakespeare. You cannot read the great books of the Western canon without having some literacy, some familiarity with phrases in scripture. 
And uh, which brings me to uh, another little point that will rankle uh, some of my um, Catholic friends. Uh, and that is that I chose in the writing of this book to use the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, why not the Douay Reims? Why not the, a more modern translation? And uh, I give in the introduction of the book two reasons uh, why. The first is, believe it or not, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, I had a lot of friends who were non-Catholics, in particular African-American friends. Uh, and I used to go to their churches if for no other reason than the music. <laughs> and the great, great music I, I attended before it was so well known, I attended uh, with a friend on a relatively regular basis, the Brooklyn Tabernacle uh, in, on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. I don't think it's on Atlantic Avenue anymore. But it has become one of the great gospel choirs in the United States. And uh, so in order to hear the music, you'd sit through the, the sermons. And these preachers, quoting from the King James Bible from memory, just sheer poetry, uh, I was taken with that, even as a, a, an Italian-American kid growing up in Brooklyn, taken with that. That's the, the first reason. And the second reason that I used, elected to use uh, the, uh, the King James Version is because the majesty of the language, that Elizabethan language, that's the language of Shakespeare, right? Matches the drama and the majesty of the parables themselves. These are great stories. Uh, parables, of course, were not invented by Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. He inherited many parables. Uh, uh, some, there are some allusions, as I was studying the parables at great depth, uh, there are allusions to certain Jewish parables, and if you do the research, you can find some of the connections, some of the reference points. Um, but these are not fables. Uh, these are not fantastical stories. What makes the parables, particularly the parables of Jesus, but parables in general, unique is that they are derived from very recognizable circumstances that people live in. I think this is part of the reason for their accessibility, why they are so easy. One of the, the things I noticed, uh, both about the parables, but also about preaching in general, is that if you use story, if you use the parabolic form, you can speak to a wide diversity of audiences. There's no greater compliment that I ever receive after uh, having preached uh, after Mass. And by the way, I've been complimented many times at Masses that I did not preach at. <laughs> so that tells you, you know, with people going out the door, oh, great, great, great sermon, Father, great sermon. Yeah, that's fine. I didn't preach. Uh, I may have dressed like the guy who preached, but I, I didn't preach. But the, the, seriously, the, the greatest homily, uh, or the greatest compliment I've received after a homily uh, would be a, a kind of dual compliment. One is where somebody who will go out who maybe is a, a professor or a, a medical doctor or something like that, uh, especially a professor of literature, will compliment the contents of the homily. But then a kid will come out and say, that was a great sermon, Father. And I'll ask them, what, what was great about it? What did you like about it? And they'll tell me. 
the point. And how do you, how do you bridge that kind of audience? You bridge that kind of audience by telling a story that is from real life. And inevitably, when you're telling stories that are from real life, you have to bump into economics. Uh, let, me, let me state very clearly right at the outset that I did not intend this book as an exercise in what the, um, the uh, biblical scholars call eisegesis. Eisegesis is when you read into a text a preconceived idea. You, you kind of push your meaning into the text. What I attempted to do was exegete, exegesis, where you pull out from the text the meaning of the text. But I want to be very clear that when I talk about the economics of the parables, I am not saying that the parables have an economic message, not even primarily, not even secondarily an economic message. It's almost as though the economics of the parables are incidental to or merely a presupposition of the circumstances of human life. And that's what I find so interesting because it goes to the kind of economics that the Acton Institute speaks about and has been speaking about for 32 years now. It's not an ideology. It's an economics that's derived from human action. What human beings do in their acting and their deliberations and their considerations and what they know about their personal circumstances in life, this can be formulated and was historically formulated into schools of thought that emerge first from moral theologians. You know that Adam Smith didn't invent economics. Everybody seems to think that. It really goes back to the scholastics in the 16th century, who were many of whom were moral theologians, and they were considering things from a moral perspective. And so they would say, is it moral for a person who is a traitor, who knows that in a day or two or three, there's going to arrive the kinds of products that he's selling. But when he's selling these products, they're relatively scarce. Is it legitimate for him to raise the price on the, those products, knowing that a, a, an abundance of supply is about to come in? And one of the scholastics actually deals with that specific question. And a lot of other questions like that, questions having to do with inflation. Inflation isn't a new phenomenon. Uh, it's becoming new to this generation of young people who have never experienced inflation, not on the way some of us who lived during the Carter years experienced it. Uh, but inflation, in point of fact, existed in the ancient world. Uh, one of the reasons anybody who has, I don't have a coin on me, uh, but anybody who has a, a quarter or a dime, you notice the ridges along the rim of the coin. Uh, and I know this is an economically sophisticated audience. I'm sure many of you know what that, those set of ridges is there for. It's to prevent the monarch, the government, from sanding down the coin and diminishing the coin by just a little bit but when you do that with enough coins, eventually you have a nice pile of silver or gold, and you can then restamp more coins. But meanwhile, your coin has been diminished just a little bit 
almost imperceptibly. Now, of course, we can do that on a massive scale, and that's called economic policy. Uh, and, and we're seeing it happen. When, you, when, you, when the government prints the currency, it diminishes the currency that's already been printed. And that's why prices go up, because people can now measure it in a way that was more difficult to measure those coins that had been diminished. So we have those ridges on the coins as a memento of the action against the state to diminish the, the real value of our currency. So economics, in the sense that I am speaking about it, is human action. It is not uh, ideology, it's not even philosophy. And that's what I find so fascinating. When Jesus tells these stories, he's telling stories that everyone can relate to very easily because people have to hire people to work for them. People have to pay those salaries. People have various kinds of contract disputes, whether it's inheritance uh, or the like. Um, people build storage houses to store their goods. People have to build homes and can build them more or less securely. All of these become, all of these factors become the stuff of the parables that Jesus is teaching. The goal of the parables, as it's stated in many, many of the parables, is what Jesus says, the kingdom of God may be likened unto, and then he gives you some human circumstance. So it's the kingdom of God. It's pointing to the transcendent. But what's interesting about it, what's relevant to us, it's pointing to the transcendent from the concrete, from the here and the now. And, and to my mind, that resonates with the whole of the Christian belief, which is that God became man that he insinuated himself into the human experience, that he entered history in time and space, that he lived at a particular place in a particular time and spoke a particular marriage, that he was born of a particular woman in a particular village, that all of that particularity points to something that is transcendent. God redeems the world from within the world, not outside of the world. The incarnation is the embrace of human history so as to reorder the priorities of the human telos, of the human goal, the end, and the purpose of our lives. And the parables do this in so many intricate and multiple ways. So I'll just kind of pull one or two um, of the parables uh, out to just um, talk to you. People... <laughs> Uh, not every time, but very often I'm asked, just was asked on a podcast the other day, what is your favorite parable? Whenever I'm asked that, I ask the uh, interviewer, are you married? Yeah. You have kids? Yeah. Which is your favorite kid? <laughs> I had one tell me. <laughs> I said, I hope you're going to edit that out. If not for the kid's sake, uh, the, the fact that your wife might hear it. <laughs> uh, if I was pushed, I mean, uh, I can't say that I like all of the parables uh, the same. Some of them are, are difficult and onerous to understand. They're, you, know, you have to grapple with them very often. But 
the one that touches me, that I, I just kind of discover a certain emotive reaction, is the, the shortest parable. It's the parable of the pearl of great price. And there's another one very much like it, the hidden treasure. There's a lot of uh, comparisons between the two. But the pearl of great price is interesting to my mind because remember, pearls in the day in which this is written could not be uh, manufactured. They had to be discovered, right? They just came inside of the oyster. Now you can manufacture pearls. Um, you could call it artificially manufacture them. And the moral lesson of this particular parable speaks to something uh, deep inside of me. Given, given my emotional reaction to it, I have to ask myself, what is it? And I, I can't tell you that I, I fully understand what my, my emotional reaction is to it, but it's, it's the sheer graciousness of having found this luxury good, uh, having come upon it and been enriched by something that you did not contribute to its existence. You didn't make it. It's something you come upon. And what I find so compelling about it is the response on the part of the one who finds it. He is willing to relinquish everything in his life, sells everything that he has in order to obtain this pearl. Now, this has no practical use. This is another interesting thing from an economic point of view when you read this. Jesus is holding up a luxury item that you can imagine that uh, the Wall Street protesters would denounce. I mean, people wearing diamonds or jewels or pearls. And yet Jesus is holding up a luxury item not to condemn it, but to show how magnificent it is and to teach us a moral lesson. So there's no condemnation here of luxury. There are plenty of condemnations of those who would seek luxury above all else, that who commit idolatry. You find that uh, elsewhere in these um, uh, parables and, and in the, the Gospels themselves. But this pearl of great price is found in the market. It's not found in the oyster. That's another interesting part of it. The man has to pay for it. He hasn't just discovered it. This is a distinction from the hidden treasure. You know, the man finds this hidden treasure uh, and he, gets, he buys the land in order to get the treasure, which raises a whole other set of economic questions uh, or moral questions. But the uh, importance of this is the backdrop in this parable of the substructure of trade that enables us to understand the value of things, but then what Jesus points to is something that's higher than the uh, subjective value of things, and that is the eternal value of things, that it's pointing to the kingdom of heaven, and that this man has his life ordered enough to know that he must relinquish everything else that he possesses, that he holds, that he has held as dear in order to obtain uh, this pearl of great price. So that would be really emotively uh, my favorite. Uh, but then 
you know, I mean, I'm thinking of the parable of the talents. That's, that's probably one of the ones I'm most asked about. You know the story. It actually occurs in two of the Gospels. I chose Matthew uh, because it gave me a little bit more to work with than, than the other one, the synoptic. The Gospels, you remember, are divided. The four Gospels are divided into two categories. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic is, comes from the Greek, which literally translated means one, one eye, one perspective. And they're called the Synoptic Gospels because they're written from a similar perspective, and they probably used common source material. In fact, when you read the Gospels in parallel, I don't know if you've ever had that exercise. There's a, a book called uh, Gospel Parallels by uh, Throckmorton, I think is the guy who edited it. And when you read them in parallel, they're very interesting because you immediately see, I don't know if you're like me, I mean... I'm a priest. I've been a priest for many, many years. I've studied this stuff professionally. I still get confused. Is that from Matthew's gospel or is that from, you know, uh, Mark's gospel? You rarely get confused with a story from John's gospel to these other three because John is so different. The language of it is different. It's written in Greek as opposed to Aramaic and, and uh, Hebrew. Uh, and the stories are very different. The accounts are very different. It's very theological. I'm, I'm told by linguists that it is the most eloquently uh, written, elegantly written uh, of the Gospels. But when you compare these stories, you see their similarities, but you also see their differences. And what that tells you is something about the control over which the writer had in the relation of the story that is being shared by another person or two other persons, depending on the particular parable. So that what we have in the parable of the talents is an interesting story, and I just concentrate, as I say, on Matthew's version of it. And I'm asked about this because it seems cruel. The master comes across as cruel because in the end, the man who is given one talent still has the one talent, he hasn't stolen it. He hasn't even diminished the value of it. And he hands it back to the master. And the master is very severe. He takes it from him. He gives it to the others, who, the one who has the most. And then he casts him out. And people will say, that just doesn't, that's not fair. Let's go over and, and just look at this whole story and see uh, some depth to it. And see what economic stuff is going on in the backdrop. The first thing is, you, you know the story, I'm presuming you know the story, it's the story of a, a, a rich man who has uh, some money that he leaves with his servants and he's going off and he says, uh, be productive with this, I'm entrusting it to you. And one of the key passages you have to keep in mind in the reading of the whole thing occurs right at the beginning. And he entrusts to each according to his ability. So the first presupposition of this story is that the people who are entrusted with this man's wealth, so he's making a gift, or at least if not a gift to them, certainly he's entrusting them with his wealth. He knows to whom he is entrusting his wealth. He gives to each according to his ability. And his judgment was that if I'm giving you five you have great capacity to do something with this. I'm going to trust you with this. You two 
you won. He has the knowledge of who's being entrusted with it. And then they go to work. We don't know what they did, but they go to work and the master comes back. The one who has five has doubled it. The one who has two has, or is it 10 and then five? I'm getting, you see, I'm getting the, the two versions confused. And then the one who has one pulls it out and gives it to me. One of the first things you need to understand is that to bury a valuable thing in the ancient world was considered a normal approach. You didn't know if you were going to be invaded, if somebody was going to rob you. The thing to do was to be to bury the, the valuable thing so that you could preserve it. So that was not the problem. The problem emerges when this servant encounters the master and he reveals what he's really thinking all along about the master. The master thinks you have the capacity, you have the ability to do something with what I've entrusted you. And you didn't do it. And now it comes to the fore, what he really thinks of the master. The first thing he says to the master is, I was afraid. Fear can paralyze. You know, if you talk to business leaders, any of the business people here who have been entrepreneurial, one of the first things they will tell you is, what's needed to function in a market is risk. A certain risk tolerance. Because you're placing at the caprice of the market your, your livelihood, your money. Very often people will, will hock themselves. They'll cash out their credit cards, borrow from their parents' 401k in order to start a business. Why? Because they believe in it. They have to have some element of courage. This man shows the opposite. He is afraid. And why is he afraid? Well, here we really get to it. I was afraid because I knew that you are a hard man. This is the man who entrusted you with his money. You are a hard man. And here's the economic line. And if it doesn't sound like Karl Marx, I suggest to you that you haven't read Karl Marx. Because you reap where you have not sown, and you gather where you have not scattered. What is that saying on an economic level? It's saying that your productivity, your profit making is illegitimate. That's what he's saying to the master. I gather where I haven't scattered. I reap where I have not sown. I've just sown it. I've entrusted it to you. And that's the reaction. You know, that when you hear that that line of envy, many people condemn actors in the market economy for being greedy. They say, well, your motive here is to make a profit, right? Think of the alternative, right? Yeah, why would you do it if you weren't going to be profitable in doing it, right? You're going to, it takes nothing to create a loss, right? Sit here long enough, and you've got your loss. To make a profit requires some ingenuity. We don't know what kind of ingenuity and that these uh, two engaged in. But we do know, and this is interesting coming from the mouth of Jesus, especially when you read this parable in the context of the left's critique of the free market, 
And the caricature of Jesus, part of the reason I wrote the book, was to dilute and respond to the caricature of Jesus as a socialist. Because he says to the man, you could have at least taken what I gave you and invested it with the bankers. And then you would have had a profit. Here's Jesus saying this. You could have been profitable. But why weren't you? Because you misunderstood who I am. And because you were fearful. And for that reason, for the reason that you have not trusted in my benevolence, I take what you have and I give it to the one who is the most productive and I cast you out. Now, of course, this isn't just a, a message of uh, damning people who can't make a profit or don't know how. It's a, that's too simplistic an interpretation of, of the parables. And, and people very often do that with parables. They say, well, why is this man who, who was dragged into the banquet and he wasn't properly dressed, this poor guy, and he gets berated by the man who threw the banquet? You're at a level that you're missing the big picture of the parable. And so that's kind of the approach that I've taken. Now, three quarters of the book deals with 13 parables that I've selected. There are several other parables that I could have selected to include in this, but my time, my deadline was running out and COVID was diminishing. Uh, that's where I wrote a lot of this was in the middle of the, the shutdown. Although I have to tell you, those who have been around the Acton Institute for a long time know that this book has been a long time in coming because I, I've been working on it in between all the other pastoral and academic projects that I've been involved with. Uh, this, <coughs> the, the afterward of the book is, uh, I think, very interesting and new material that I put together because it's a broader look. I kind of, now we've looked at the parables and I kind of stand back and look at the New Testament as a whole from the question of <clears throat> economics. So what I handle in there are questions of, was the early church socialist? They had all things common. Uh, what about Jesus clearing the money changes out of the temple? Uh, wasn't that a <clears throat> kind of radical um, a socialist act to decry uh, profit making and money money changing or what about uh, the association of Jesus he's always seen with the poor well actually there are a lot of passages that indicate that he's around wealthy people all the time and I kind of exegete all of that and then of course, the most fam uh, famous of the scriptures, which isn't a parable, <clears throat> but intrigues people, is didn't Jesus tell you to give away all your money? You know, didn't he say that to the rich young ruler who comes to him? Isn't it, isn't it, more, isn't it easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven? And I handle that passage. Now, I'm not going to give you the answer to those questions. We're going to go to Q&A, and if you want to ask that, you can. Or better yet, buy the book. Uh, better yet, buy the book for your pastors. And tell him that he is given um, uh, a dispensation from the author that he may steal homilies from this book, if, if that will help him or her, as the case may be. So... Um, I'm going to stop there, uh, and uh, I want to thank you very much for your attention and for all of the friendship and the support that, that I've felt over many, many years uh, from all of you. Thank you.
As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.